You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm Ralph McInerney, and this is our fourth lecture in an introductory course to metaphysics. From the beginning, we've seen that metaphysics is the culminating concern of philosophy. As wisdom, it is that towards which all philosophical, all the component disciplines and inquiries of philosophy towards which they aspire. So as culminating, it is something in the distance, hard to get to. Thomas will point out that wisdom comes with age. Not necessarily. That's not a sufficient condition, but a necessary condition for being wise is to have been around a while and to have a great deal of experience. So we see it as something that is not easily had, something that is the goal, the aim, the culminating concern of philosophy. And that raises a grave question when we look at what Aristotle actually does when he compares metaphysics with the other sciences. As we were seeing in the previous lecture, what we find in the fourth book of the Metaphysics of Aristotle, where he is having announced there is a science of being as being, which studies the properties of being as being, thus locating it as a science like other sciences, asserting or implying that it saves the criteria of science that he had laid out in his logical works, a subject matter of which properties are proved thanks to the definition of the subject matter. And we saw that he compared the subject matter of metaphysics with those of philosophy of nature and mathematics by saying that these other sciences are special sciences. They study a particular kind of being, a region of being, so to speak, physical being, quantified being, whereas the science that we are seeking, the one that we are elaborating, the one that Aristotle is in pursuit of, in his metaphysics studies being as being, that is being in its full range and without restriction. Now, we spent some time in our previous lecture showing the way in which Aristotle deals with the question that being is not a univocal term. It doesn't have a single meaning. So how could there be a nature that would enable you to establish properties of being in the standard way of a science? By invoking the notion of analogous community of terms as a mid kind of universality or predicability between univocity and pure equivocity, Aristotle was able to assert that being is said in many ways, but one of the ways is primary and controlling, and that is substance, so that the sufficient subject of metaphysics will be substance. We ended our last lecture with this problem, which seems to undercut this whole effort, this whole notion that metaphysics is something that has to be achieved, that comes at the end of inquiry and so forth. Isn't it the case that by saying that metaphysics studies being as being, that Aristotle is putting a premium on universality? It's as if we are being told that to know of a robin, for example, that it is a being, is somehow a more exalted kind of knowledge of that substance. It's as if we knew, or if we studied triangles, not as triangles, not in terms of their properties as triangles, but as being, somehow this would be an advance. Now this goes clearly against the suggestions at the outset of the physics of Aristotle, 
when he is laying out the natural mode of procedure of human thinking. And there he tells us that while we are talking about individual things in the world, the first things we say about them are glittering generality. And what we do as we advance in knowledge is to arrive at more and more specific knowledge of things so that we know how they differ from one another and more and more precise differences. So the advance of knowledge, as Aristotle puts it before us in the opening discussions of his physics, is from the general to the specific. Now, in talking about the subject of metaphysics, he seems to be reversing that and saying a science which is of glittering generality that studies being as being is somehow preferable to the particular sciences, and indeed it represents the culminating concern of philosophy. You will find in Thomas Aquinas a discussion of this in the Summa Theologiae, in the first part of that masterwork of Thomas's, question 85, article 3. You'll find Thomas asking precisely this question, whether the more universal is prior in our intellectual knowledge. And in the course of the discussion, Thomas says, well, of course, our intellectual knowledge is dependent on our sense knowledge, and the senses bear on singulars. So in that sense, singular objects are what is prior in human knowledge taken globally. But if we consider intellectual knowledge just as such, here the procedure is from potentiality to actuality. And we move the potentiality for knowing is something that is realized in stages. And the stages are degrees of universality. So that it is a universal whole that we first know. We grasp in Aristotle's example at the outset of the physics, kids first of all call all males father, daddy. They call all women mommy. So that a term like that, which we would think of as being quite specific, is used first of all in a very generic way. And it is only gradually that it is referred to the maternal or paternal parent of the child who is speaking. Another example that Aristotle gives is we see something from far off and we know there's something there. But as it comes closer, or as we get nearer to it, maybe we're moving rather than it, we see, well, it's alive. Huh? and then it's an animal, and then it's human, and then it's my mother-in-law. So there is a gradual specification of our knowledge from the vague through the less vague, finally to the precise and particular. Now it's as if Aristotle is suggesting that it's that initial vague knowledge that there's something there that is to be preferred to these precisions that come only with inquiry. Does he really want to say that? Is this order of learning, this order of determining a subject from the more to the less universal to the most specific, is that abrogated by metaphysics? Are we here in this supposedly culminating science of philosophy? Are we putting a premium on universality, on vagueness? Are we now saying that there's something much more profound in saying of a robin that it's a being than that it's a robin? Very often people fall into this way of speaking and say it with a certain kind of fervor and it might initially seem to make some sense to us. But of course, as we ponder it, it doesn't make a lot of sense at all. I would much rather know what a robin is as a robin than simply to know that it's a bird or that it's something there. So what is going on here? Do we have a reversal on Aristotle's part of what he insisted on? Thomas too in the passage that I mentioned from the Summa Theologiae is insisting that our 
intellectual knowledge begins with universals and goes on from there. What then are we to make of a science of universal being? And it doesn't much matter here, you see, whether we stick with the initial designation of the subject as being as being, or having followed Aristotle's analysis of being said in many ways, we say, well, no, substance will be the adequate subject of metaphysics. If we know a robin as a substance, is this to know it more profoundly than it would be to know it as a robin? Clearly not. Clearly not. So there is something enigmatic, there is something problematic about these claims as to the nature of metaphysics, and we have to pursue them. Clearly, we couldn't leave it at this. We couldn't attribute to Aristotle those views that somehow when we know things as beings, we know them in virtue of that which doesn't discriminate them from anything else. Therefore, there's a kind of synonymy between knowing something as a being and knowing it as nothing. We know nothing about it in a specific way. These word games can be played when we are moving at that level of generality, and it would be astounding if Aristotle is now telling us that this kind of vague knowledge is preferable. So what is going on here? You'll remember that we referred to Werner Jaeger's conception of the metaphysics as containing two warring and incompatible conceptions of the science. On the one hand, an ontology, a general science, a science that would study everything in the most general terms of all, on the one hand, and an ontology. And our suggestion, just by way of a promissory note, when we talked about that before, was that these are not two rival conceptions of the science, but rather they tell us something about how we are going to arrive at the desired term of metaphysics and of philosophy generally, which is, as you remember, such knowledge as human beings can achieve of God. And our promissory note in a sentence was, metaphysics, in order to be a theology, has to be an ontology. This is a condition of it. So we are going to look for the reason for talking in these much more general terms in metaphysics as justified not because this is thought to give us more profound knowledge of material things, but because this is a way to get to a knowledge of God which will be better than the intimations of divinity that Aristotle managed to arrive at in the course of doing natural philosophy, namely God as a prime mover. So we will be looking at that promissory note and I will be redeeming it. But in order to redeem it, we must turn to a intervening and absolutely crucial discussion. And that is this, in almost every place where Aristotle or Thomas talk about the distinction between metaphysics and mathematics and the philosophy of nature, they are going to talk about a difference in the mode of defining of those sciences. And what we are going to see is that the way in which the subject matter of metaphysics is discussed as being as being, while it is undeniably a matter of greater universality, predicable universality, than mobile being or quantified being, nonetheless this is not the being as it is first known that is distinguished from being as being which is the subject of metaphysics. But in order to see that we're going to have to look closely at the 
way in which the mode of defining the subject of a science provides us with the means for distinguishing formally between philosophy of nature, mathematics, and metaphysics. We're turning now to a very famous text of Thomas Aquinas, one that has received a great deal of attention in recent years, if recent can include, say, the last half century. And this is Thomas's commentary on the little opusculum tractate, theological tractate of Boethius on the Trinity. Thomas, when he was fairly young, when he was at the University of Paris in his first stint before he went back to Italy for 10 years, say in the late 1250s, commented on two works of Boethius. One is called the De Hebdomadibus, whether everything that is is good just insofar as it is, a tremendously important treatise to which we will be referring in a moment, and the other, this De Trinitate, on the Trinity. The second, the De Hebdomadibus, is complete. This is incomplete, and Thomas's commentary stops right after the opening of the second chapter of the treatise on the Trinity of Boethius. But that second chapter of Boethius opens with a statement about a difference between natural, mathematical, and theological consideration. And presumably, Boethius introduces this because he's trying to locate the discussion that he's undertaking in that little treatise, namely the Trinity, something that has interesting implications of itself. Thomas, when he comments on this, proceeds not as he does in his commentaries on Aristotle or in his commentaries on Scripture, that is a linear, interlinear commentary. Rather, he gives us, first of all, a divisio textus, as he calls it, a kind of outline of the text. And having done that, then he just lists a number of questions which are prompted by the text, and he goes on and discusses those in his own pace and on his own. What I'm going to refer you to now is question five of the commentary on the De Trinitate of Boethius. When I was a young man, a man named Paul Wieser, a Swiss Dominican, published a little book containing just these two questions of the commentary of Thomas on Boethius. And the fact that five and six entered into this little edition, of course, makes it clear that one, two, three, and four did not. Only later, a man named Bruno Decker gave us a critical edition of the whole commentary of Thomas on Boethius. But the discussion that interests us now, that is the distinction between the speculative sciences, the way in which metaphysics is set off from the other sciences, this was the great interest of this text, because we have the holograph, Thomas's own handwritten text manuscript of this work, and in the course of discussing the matters of this question five, which is how do philosophy of nature, mathematics, and metaphysics differ from one another, in the course of doing that, Thomas clearly was searching for a way to handle the problem because we have versions that he discarded before he hit on the version that appears in the critical edition. But in Bruno Decker's edition, you will find in an appendix those earlier tries at making the distinction between metaphysics and the other sciences. Many scholars thought that this gave us a clue as to the peculiarity and originality of metaphysics in Thomas Aquinas. And many scholars tried to find in this text a way of driving a wedge between Thomas and Aristotle. That's a long story, but it seems to me that there's little or nothing to that particular effort. Okay, what do we find now in this text? The first thing that Thomas talks about is, well, what is the object of speculative knowledge? And he says it has two characteristics, one which derives from the demands of science, 
and the other which derives from the character of thinking, intellection itself. From the point of view of science, as we've seen earlier, the notion of having knowledge in the strong sense of something is to have knowledge of that which cannot be otherwise, which is necessary. And that which can be otherwise is that which has a principle in it of being otherwise, and that is matter in sensible, insensible things. Their matter is the potentiality to be something other than what they are. It's the seeds of their corruptibility. So that if we're going to have a necessary object, it's going to have to be in some way removed from matter. Intellection is something which, as we've seen, just an assertion really, or a narration, is something that is immaterial in its operation. We'll be returning to that claim. Given these two things, Thomas says it looks as if the two notes of the object of speculation will be immateriality and immobility. Now, on the basis of that, he can say this, look, if the object of speculation, if we can find variations in those objects in terms of these two marks of the speculable, that it is immaterial and immobile, that will give us a formal distinction between objects of knowledge and consequently a formal distinction between the sciences that bear on those objects. So this is a text in which we have not just a kind of division of labor claim, well, we'll call this science one that does this and that science the one that does that, and just sort of leave it vague. What we have here is something that is very characteristic of Thomas, and that is a formal statement of the difference, so that we see it's not just a random kind of claim. It is a claim based on criteria of the speculable object and the upshot is that we have a formal distinction between three sciences, philosophy of nature, mathematics, and metaphysics. This is the way he puts it, and in doing this, he's repeating Boethius, who in turn is repeating Aristotle. There are some speculables, he says, which depend on matter in order to be, because they can only exist in matter. But there's a subdivision under such thing. There are some things that exist only in matter which depend on matter both in order to be and in order to be understood, whereas there are other things which only exist in matter, but we can consider them without considering matter. This, for him, is the distinction, as you can imagine, between philosophy of nature on the one hand and mathematics on the other. Clearly, the definition in natural science have to include matter, but they don't include this matter. Aristotle's favorite example is this. We don't have a science of these bones and this flesh. We have a science of bones and flesh. So the removal of the object of consideration from this particular matter is a sufficient removal from matter to have an object of science, and that characterizes all of the considerations of natural science for Aristotle and St. Thomas. These will be things which exist in matter, and matter, common matter, has to enter into our account of them in the way in which it would enter into our account of bones and flesh. Mathematical objects exist only in things. That is, they're the edges and shapes and so forth of physical bodies. That's what's existent. But their idealized form, their abstract form as we consider them, drops out all of those notes of the material, temperature, color, texture, weight, and so forth, and we consider simply the idealized triangle or straight line or circle and so forth. This is the formal difference between 
mathematics and philosophy of nature in terms of the mode of defining. Why is the mode of defining crucial? Because as we saw earlier, a science is a kind of discourse which shows that something belongs to a subject because of what that subject is. What that subject is is what is expressed in its definition. If you have formally different kinds of definition, you have a means, a criterion whereby you can distinguish between arguments that belong to this science, philosophy of nature, and arguments that belong to that science, metaphysics. There are some things, some speculable object, Thomas goes on, which do not depend upon matter in order to be, because they can be, they can exist apart from matter. And here he has in mind what? Substance, being, quality, potency, act, one, many, and the like. There are some things which do not depend upon matter in order to be, and they never can exist in matter. And the examples he gives are God and the angels. So we have two kinds of speculable object that do not include matter in their definition. One, because they never exist in matter, God and the angels. And the other set, this is the important one for us right now, immediately, because they don't necessarily exist in matter. Some beings are immaterial. Sometimes actuality is not the actuality of matter. This is the opening that was talked of earlier that was discovered in the course of doing the philosophy of nature, the opening to metaphysics that while being is something we first encounter in material things, our study of material things gives us reason to hold that there are some things which exist which are not like those material things. And that was the opening to metaphysics. And now this is what we return to when we see that the definitions of metaphysics will be, and the definitions of figure as the middle terms and arguments in metaphysics as a science, will not include matter, whether common sensible matter or any other kind of matter. They will differ both from the arguments of natural science and of mathematics. The great difference, of course, between metaphysics, or one of the great differences between it and mathematics is that not only does it define without matter, but it's talking about things which can exist without matter. And this is what is denied of the objects of mathematics. So this text, which it's sinful, of course, to be summarizing a text which is as dense as this, in so summary a matter, but you could say that of the whole effort to give a portrait of metaphysics in six lessons. The impossible is something that we're engaged in necessarily in such an effort as this, and I can only hope that by laying the elements of the discussion before you, even though everything isn't immediately intelligible as it comes at you on this tape, that on reflection and by reference to the things to which I'm referring, some of the obscurity at least will go away. But it would be odd, wouldn't it, if the culminating concerns of philosophy came to us as if they were self-evidently true, what any fool would have thought right off the bat, and so forth. But what we will demand, of course, and what you must demand of me, is that however obscure and abstract what I say is, I have to be able to go down the Jacob's Ladder and get back to where everybody already is. And if philosophy cannot justify these very abstruse and sophisticated analyses by getting them back to where everybody is, then it's philosophy that loses, not everyone else.
So while I am conscious of the fact that I am moving very swiftly here through a very difficult text, one I would be delighted to talk about just for itself by the hour, I see no alternative to that. And I beg your indulgence of this, and we will be trying now to explicate this a little bit more fully. The text to which I'm referring, and whose complexity and difficulty I've been waxing poetic on, is noteworthy because of the distinction that it employs between abstraction and separation. And these terms are first of all used by Thomas in his commentary interchangeably, and interchangeably with one another and with another term, distinction so that our mind distinguishes one thing from another, it abstracts one thing from another, it separates one thing from another. At the outset, these are used interchangeably. But there comes a point when Thomas wants to give a narrower definition to both abstraction and to separation. And when he gives those narrow definitions, then he will say separation is peculiar to metaphysics and abstraction is something that covers natural science and mathematics. The narrow meaning of abstraction is this. We are said to abstract when we consider apart what cannot exist apart. So the way in which in the abstraction involved in natural philosophy, the way in which we consider material objects is not the way in which they exist. We consider them universally. We consider bones and flesh, not this flesh and these bones, but it's only this flesh and these bones that exist, not flesh and bones generally. So in that sense, there is an abstraction and a mode of consideration, which is such that we don't expect that to be realized outside of our thinking. So too in the abstraction that is involved in mathematics. There aren't triangles and straight lines and circles of the kind that we study in plane geometry existing in space-time. We don't expect them there, so here is considering apart what cannot exist apart. That's the narrow meaning of abstraction, and that's the application of it, hurriedly, to natural philosophy and mathematics. What is separation? Separation is considering apart what can exist apart. Considering apart what can exist apart. And this is something that is expressed in a negative judgment, that X is not Y. An abstraction doesn't assert that something exists in the way in which it is being considered, so it's not a falsehood. But in separation, we're saying X is not Y. What is this separation? Now, there were those who toyed with the idea that what was involved here in this separatio was a distinction that we'll be looking at that Thomas makes between essence and existence, and that this characterizes and is peculiar and proper to the metaphysics of Thomas Aquinas. It begins with the recognition of a distinction between essence and existence. Well, of course, that has nothing to do with the discussion that we're looking at, although this is the discussion on which such flights of fancy were made. What we are being told here is that in metaphysics, there must be a judgment that that which is considered apart from matter and motion can exist apart from matter and motion. So that when the metaphysician is considering being, when he is considering substance, when he is considering act and potency and so forth, he is looking for a definition of those terms which do not include matter not in order to have a more profound characterization of sensible physical object, but in order to have an account that will be applicable 
to things which exist apart from matter. So that the movement towards generality, towards ontology, is always aimed at arriving at considerations or definitions, arguments which are applicable to immaterial things. That's the aim of the metaphysician. That's why ontology is the condition for there being a theology. Thomas, in the same commentary, makes a distinction between two meanings, two senses of divine science. On the one hand, there is a divine science that has God as its subject, a theology that has God as its subject. This is the theology based on sacred scripture. This is what we normally would think of as theology. This is when we think of Thomas as a master of theology. We think of him as a magister sacre pagine. He is an expert in scripture. He is able to develop the implications of scripture in his disputed questions and in the Summa and so forth. So this is a knowledge of God or a science about God which is controlled by those truths that we accept on faith because they have been revealed by God. That's the starting point of theology in that sense. Clearly that's not what Aristotle is doing. So Thomas wants to distinguish this sense, this higher sense of divine science from divine science as it applies to the metaphysics of Aristotle. And here he says you have a divine science that considers divine reality not as its subject, but as the principle of its subject. And he goes on, both are concerned with things which are separate from matter and motion in existence. They both involve separatio, but differently, due to the fact that something can be separate from matter in existence in two ways. First, such that it is of its very definition that it be separate from matter, and thus it can never exist in matter and motion. Example again, God and the angel. Secondly, things that are such that it is not of their definition that they be in matter and motion, although they can be, and being, potency, act, substance, and so forth. So that we see here that for Aristotle and Thomas, we are looking for definitions of being, of substance, of act, of potency, of essence, which do not include matter and motion, not again because we think this is a more profound understanding of physical objects, for example, but because this is the only way in which we can move towards an understanding of things which always exist apart from matter, God and the angel. Now, in the proemium to his commentary on the metaphysics, Thomas says some things which put together these various considerations of metaphysics, first by distinguishing what look to be quite different considerations and then showing how they come together. And he begins by taking one of those notes of the wise man that we saw Aristotle listing earlier in the second chapter, the first book of the metaphysics, that it belongs to the wise man to order rather than to be ordered. The wise man can order because his mind is on the most intelligible thing. This is the way he sets up the proemium. And then he asks, in virtue of what are things most intelligible? 
in virtue of what are things most fittingly thought to be objects of intellection. And he gives three considerations that would enable us to arrive at that. First of all, he says, ex ordine intelligendi, from the order of understanding. The things which cause certitude, cause it, will be things which are most fittingly objects of intellection. And first causes will be most intellectual or most intelligible. That from the order of understanding. Secondly, from a comparison of intellect to senses. The senses bear on singular, intellect on universal. So that the most intellectual or intelligible things and this returns us to our problem at the outset of this lecture, the most intelligible things will be the most universal thing. And then secondly, from the very knowledge of intellect, which involves separation from matter, the most immaterial things, divine things, will be the most intelligible thing. So from these three different approaches, we have three candidates for what will be most intelligible. First causes, the most universal things, and the most immaterial or divine thing. And then Thomas says, this is in his proemium, his preface to his commentary on the metaphysics. These do not yield three sciences, but one science. That is, all of these things can be put together. How? This is Thomas. For the separate substances mentioned are the first and universal causes of being. It falls to the same science to consider the proper causes of a genus and the genus. Genus here means subject matter. The proper causes of a subject matter and the subject matter as the natural philosopher considers the principles of natural body, the causes of a natural body. So it falls to the same science to consider separate substances, God and the angels, and common being which is the genus, the subject matter, of which the aforesaid substances are the common and universal causes. So this science does not consider these three things as its subject, but only common being, universal being, as its subject. The subject of a science is that whose causes and properties we seek, not the causes themselves of the subject. Knowledge of the causes is the end. Now, on the basis of these three considerations, not all of which give us the subject of the science, only being, common being, as the subject of the science, God enters into the subject as the cause of the subject. So he's not the subject or part of the subject of metaphysics, but a cause of the subject of metaphysics. Thomas says, that's why we have three names for what we are about to look into in Aristotle. It's called theology. He's doing this in his commentary on the metaphysics of Aristotle at the Premium. It's called theology because it studies divine substances, not as its subject matter, but as the cause of its subject matter. It's called metaphysics because it comes after the physics. And here Thomas doesn't allude to that library classification theory that I mentioned before, but he says the things that we study in metaphysics are after and beyond the things that we study in physics. And it's called first philosophy because we study the first causes of all things. So we come back to the assertion that puzzled us at the beginning. We're told that now the subject matter of metaphysics is predicably more universal than the subject matters of natural philosophy and mathematics. That is problematic because it seems to put a premium on universality. 
if the aim of metaphysics were to say something more profound about physical object by using more general predicates, then of course it would run afoul of what Thomas and Aristotle say about the proper order of intellectual knowledge. So why are we settling? Or why are we concentrating on these predicably, undeniably, predicably more universal terms, being, act, potency, in order to come to such knowledge as we can of God and the angel. That's the aim. That's the aim. We do find in that same passage, the commentary, the proemium on the commentary of the uh, metaphysics, a remark of Thomas, which gives a justification of a more universal discussion or consideration just as such. What I'm saying is the principle justification for it is not that we are enamored of universality and generality and the non-specific, but because, and we'll be pursuing this further, the non-specific or the more general accounts that we can give of being and act and potency and so forth provide us with a vocabulary that can be used of things which exist apart from matter and motion. That's the aim not again to give more profound knowledge of the things around us, the things with which we begin, and begin thinking of vaguely, and we want to arrive at more and more precise knowledge of them. But in the course of talking about the second criterion of the most intelligible that he used in the proemium to his commentary in the metaphysics, one that was based, remember, on the comparison of intellectual knowledge to sense knowledge, since knowledge bears on the singular, intellectual knowledge bears on the universal, so the conclusion was the most intelligible object will be the most universal. And that, of course, is what we've been worrying about. That doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like the vague is more intelligible than the specific. And we've said enough now to indicate that vagueness here is not sought for its own sake, but in order to have terms that are less restrictive less informative, of course, of physical objects. They're less restrictive and thus can be applied to things which exist apart from matter and motion. But there is this that Thomas says about the greater universality taken in the way that we've been bothered by. What would be the most universal? He said, well, being and the things which follow on being, like one and many, potency and act and the like. And then he gives this account. Such things ought not to be left wholly undetermined, since without them complete knowledge of what is proper to a genus and species cannot be had, nor should they be treated in any particular science, because knowledge of each kind of being needs them, and by parity of reasoning they would have to be considered in all the particular sciences. It follows that they should be treated in a common science, which since it is most intellectual is regulative of others. This is a charter of sorts for what many contemporary philosophers mean by metaphysics or ontology. By it they mean not a pursuit of entities that exist apart from matter and motion, but rather a more general consideration of the objects of the various sciences. So that this is, so to speak, a logical comprehension of the subject matters of all of these various sciences so that they're talked about in terms of, let's say, certain logical properties or certain logical truths, which are common to them all. And in the fourth book of the Metaphysics of Aristotle, we have the great granddaddy of that task of metaphysics, 
but for Aristotle it would be a task, and as Thomas argues in the paramium of his commentary, this can't be divorced from the real definition and drive of metaphysics, which is aimed at such knowledge as we can achieve of the divine. But in the fourth book of the Metaphysics, there is a famous discussion on Aristotle's part of what is called variously the principle of contradiction or the principle of non-contradiction. And in it, Aristotle is concerned with something that rose up at the same time as philosophy itself. Philosophy, as we can see, is something that is defined and treated in a way that sees it as exalting, the most exalted kind of inquiry and activity that a human being can engage in because he's trying to turn his mind, that defining characteristic of a human being, on truth itself. And he's guided then by the way things are and seeks to imprint on his soul, so to speak, the pattern and reality of the things that are. At the very time that this noble and ennobling activity was being developed, there grew up another sort of person, the person that Plato calls the sophist. Sophist, of course, is the term that derives from wisdom. And as Plato presents the sophist, he's a wise guy. I mean, he's a person who uses argumentation not in order to achieve the truth of the matter, but to fool his friend or as a weapon to gain power, let's say, in a community to get people to believe something that isn't so, but their believing it is something that is to his advantage, the sophist, who is twisting and perverting the activity of reason to wrong ends. Now, when Plato talks about the sophist, he has lots of things to say about sophists, and several of his dialogues, the Protagoras, for example, the sophist isn't quite devoted to sophistry, but the Protagoras is devoted to one of the great historical sophists. What Plato could be said to be most worried about in this is the moral fault that it exhibits this perversion of reason to ends other than reasons and this malicious effort to get people to believe what one knows is false for purposes having little to do with the pursuit of truth. Plato doesn't confine himself to this, but he tends to emphasize the moral defect that is involved in that. Aristotle mentions the moral defect, but he is interested in the logic of it. And one of his logical works is called On Sophistical Refutation. And he wanted to lay out what is it that makes a sophistic argument look plausible? And how is it that we can detect a sophistic argument, particularly when it's subtly caught, so it looks unassailable, and yet it's arriving at a conclusion unjustifiably. So Aristotle is the founder of the study of sophistic reasoning as such, and his idea was the only way to refute a sophist is to show what has gone wrong in his reasoning. In the fourth book of the Metaphysics, Aristotle is concerned with people who cast doubt on the very first principle of all reasoning and of all being and reality. And that principle can be variously stated as it is impossible for something to be and not to be at the same time and in the same respect. That is, we might say, the ontological statement of it. A logical statement of it would be it's impossible to affirm and deny the same predicate of the same subject simultaneously. And an epistemological version of it might be it's impossible for the same proposition to be true and false at the same time and understood in the same way. Now, these statements of the principle 
can strike us as being a little odd the first time we hear them. The first time I heard the principle of contradiction expressed, it sounded to me like Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. It just sounded like wordplay, that it's impossible for a thing to be and not to be at the same time and in the same respect. But however complicated the verbal formula, it's expressing something that everybody knows. Everybody knows. So Aristotle now is confronting sophisticated claims to the effect that it is possible to reject and to deny that first principle of all reasoning. Now, this puts him in a bit of a box because argument is usually a matter of showing that something is so by appealing to something yet more obvious and showing that the original proposition follows from these yet more obvious truths. If you're talking about the very first truth, obviously such an appeal is closed to you. So how do you go about handling someone who rejects the principle of contradiction? How do you show he can't do it? Aristotle suggested that what you need here is a linkic reasoning. We could say what we want here is a reductio ad absurdum. And Aristotle's whole effort culminated, and he takes this very seriously. He's not rushing through this at all, because he thinks there are some people who aren't guilty of any moral fault, who are misled by this, and he wants to help them see that they don't want to, they shouldn't be misled by this kind of a rejection. So he's in no hurry. But his culminating argument seems to me to be one that we can grasp without any hesitation at all. And it comes down to this. If the refutation of the principle of contradiction is true, it's false. That is, it's a self-destruct kind of claim. If the denial, if you say it is possible for something to be true and not true at the same time in the same respect, then that must apply to that claim as well. So it's not possible for something to be true and false at the same time in the same respect. In asserting something, you're denying it. In denying it, you're asserting it. But Aristotle pointed out that language itself tells against this attempt. If somebody expresses what he takes to be the opposite of this principle, his words have to mean what they mean and not everything else. So the words in the sentence must have determinate meanings and they exclude the opposite of that determinate meaning. So even to make himself intelligible, the person who seeks to deny the principle of contradiction must invoke it. He must invoke it at minimally in the very behavior of the language and the meanings of the terms that he uses. This doesn't leave one with a great sense of elation, as if, ah, finally we have climbed the mountain. What it does is to clear away an obstacle to thinking and to the whole enterprise of philosophy and indeed of human intercourse, of just ordinary gettings on in the world. This is the sort of thing that little kids, when they argue, they fall back on just before the fighting begins. It is, it isn't, it is, it isn't, it is, it isn't. And on both sides of that argument, there is the assumption that if it is, then it can't not be, and if it isn't, then it can't be. So that the principle is latent in that kind of argument. And if there is persistence in obtuseness, that's when kids, and maybe not only kids, resort to blows rather than to argumentation. And that's the great danger in this attack on reasoning. It opens the door to force, to violence, as the way in which things will be settled. 
so that what's involved here in this defense of reason is not merely a little move in Aristotelian philosophy or part, however important it is, of the effort to develop a metaphysics. It is a defense, a clarification of that without which human life is impossible. So that sophists of any age, our own included, we have people today who are intellectual nihilists and epistemological relativists, they are sapping, undercutting the very possibility of a human life. So the defense of the principle of contradiction, however abstract and remote that might seem to ordinary concerns, links metaphysics up with the most quotidian and everyday activities of each of us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.